All right, we're in First Peter, and we're going to start in verse 17, and um, this thought is going to go all the way through verse 25, and we're going to pick up the second half of it, uh, the bigger half of it next week. But let me just read the, t- the verses uh, for this morning. And it says this, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live out your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, and then it goes on. He was chosen before the creation of the world, etc., etc. We're going to stop it right there at the end of verse 19. So let's backtrack. Verse 17 again. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers. Live your lives as strangers. And that's a, a theme that you see all throughout Scripture, all the way back to Genesis 15. God talks to, to Abram and says, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to go. You're going to become the father of nations, whatever. And then they're going to live as strangers for 400 years in a land not their own, kind of when they were in Egypt as slaves. And, and so they're going to be foreigners and they're going to be strangers. And First Peter uses this phraseology twice. And then Peter uses it again in Second Peter. And it's just kind of this reoccurring theme that God's people always are going to kind of end up living as strangers. And that someday when everything is right, we're not going to be strangers. We're going to be in our own land. We're going to be home. And so the whole idea of coming out of Egypt and going into the promised land is kind of the the perfect picture uh, or analogy of the life of faith. That we leave the old and then we get moved into the new, which is the home that God has prepared for us. And so we look forward to that home. And so we live as strangers. We live as strangers. It's a, a huge theme. Now, what does it mean to be a stranger? Stranger just means to be different. It means to be a foreigner. It means to be alien. It means to be out of place. It's a stranger. So we're supposed to be strange. We're supposed to be strange. And I think we understand that at some deep level, that we're out of sync with the world and we're supposed to be strange. But I think we settle into a, a quick, unthinking version of what it means to be strange And then we just kind of pat ourselves on the back and say, we're strange, therefore we must be doing well, we must be pleasing God, we must be righteous or whatever. Um, And so we we do the strange thing, I think, sometimes in a lot of different ways. Uh, I'll talk about two ways that I don't think we're supposed to be strangers. Uh, And the first is this, um, we're not supposed to be, being strange doesn't just mean being socially awkward. Okay, I think there's... (laughs) I think my whole life's cries. I think there needs to be more normal Christians. But, you know, being strange doesn't mean socially awkward. I remember when I first, God got a hold of my life. I was in college and I was in a fraternity at Clemson. And I kind of had to say goodbye to like the whole fraternity thing. And I was um, finally making up my mind to go to this Christian group on campus. And it was kind of a, a torturous thing to go to this Christian group. And I I was like, okay, I'll finally go. And in my mind, I was thinking, you know, this is where all the people that couldn't get into a fraternity or sorority go to hang out, you know. Um, It's just going to be a bunch of weirdos. They're socially awkward. And and it was really a struggle. And kind of the thing that got me over the hump was I decided, well, if they're all that socially awkward, when I go there, all the girls will flock to me. So it's like, all right, I guess that can be okay. It didn't quite work out that way. Um, There's actually some cool guys there. 
you know, and some cool girls there. And, and it was not what I expected at all. But I think that we sometimes think just being weird kind of makes us strangers and spiritual in some kind of a way. And, and social awkwardness is never like a virtue. It's, it, it breaks relationship and makes relationship harder. You know, I, mean, I think when I got saved, I, I was thinking, you know, somehow I have to well up inside me the desire to be able to say Jesus like the guys on TV, you know. Jesus. And I never could do it. I mean, I, I never could just get myself emotionally in the point where I would say Jesus like that. And I finally realized there's nothing spiritual about saying it that way. It's just weird. It's awkward. And pe- people feel strange, you know. And um, anyways, here's a, a clip of a, a movie I watched on uh, the plane coming back from Africa. Um, it's now, according to our webpage, my, my new favorite movie. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's in enchanted. The movie's Enchanted. Um, And so here's a clip from the movie Enchanted um, about just being socially awkward. Giselle! I've been dreaming... We're supposed to be strange, um, but not that kind of strange, okay? It's socially awkward is not a virtue. Um, the second way, I think, is, is maybe a little more of a um, serious, less funny kind of thing, but I think my, it's my generation, okay? So we'll, we'll talk about my generation. I know my generation well because I make all the mistakes in my generation. Um, my generation reacts to that, and they want to be different than that, and so they come over here and map out this territory, and they think that's now different um, because it's in reaction to that. But it's just like the person that says, I don't want to drive a BMW. Um, it's so lame that that person has to drive a BMW to be cool. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to come over here, and I'm going to get a VW Bug, and it's going to be, like, painted really cool, and it's going to be, like, and all these other things. The VW Bug person's doing the exact same thing the BMW person's doing. They want a car that expresses themselves and that they think is cool and it's going to make them look a certain way. They just think a, a VW Bug does a better job of that than, than the BMW does because their generation resonates with this more than, than the generation that liked the BMW. And so you end up doing the exact same thing. Does that make sense? And so... We now have like a movement. My generation started kind of like a lot of these little movements. And, and there's some really cool things. The, the home church movement has some really cool things about it. And the emergent church movement has some really cool things about it. Actually, a lot of the things that we hold dear at Antioch, the emergent church movement would hold dear. And so a lot of times people come and they think, you know, you must be an emergent church. And I'm like, no, we're not. Um, because there's a couple things that bother us about that, you know, and and here's an example. Um, the emergent church looks at the way church was done, the generation ahead of itself. And then um, it comes over here and it says, okay, let's huddle up, um, huddle up, huddle up. Okay, get in, get in close. Um, okay, quit pushing, get organized. Okay, um, everybody here, we all organized? Okay, we're against organized religion. Okay, um, you guys got that? Um, do you need me to put it in writing for you? Um, I can do that. We'll put it on the web page. Um, okay, but we're against organized religion. And you know what? Small groups are so stupid. Oh, 
I mean, small groups drive us crazy. We really need to talk about this, okay? Um, we're against small groups. Uh, let's have some discussions. Um, Thursday nights work for everybody? Thursday night? Okay. Johnny's house. Okay, let's go to Johnny's house. Do, do you guys have a map? Okay, we'll email out a map. Uh, Johnny's house every Thursday night. We'll get together. We don't want it to be too big. We want it to be relational, story time, discussion, build relationship. Okay, so let's keep it to 10 or 12. Okay, Johnny's house Thursday, 10 or 12 people. And we're going to talk about how we're against small groups. Um, you know, and uh, we're really against preaching. Now, that's our biggest thing. We're against preaching. So let's do a nationwide speaking tour so that we can tell people how we're against preaching um, because it's bad. It tells people things instead of letting them discover it. So let's make sure we go on a nationwide tour and it'll be on the podcast. No worries. Um, and we're, gonna, we're against preaching. Um, and my favorite one, like I, I went and heard a national speaker. You can buy his books at Barnes & Noble. Um, but one of the primary leaders in the emergent church movement. And I went and heard a, a little talk with him. And, and, um, and he says, you know, we've moved past objectivity and we need to now be incarnational. And, uh, and what he meant by that was, you know, we need to not be um, about uh, analytical thinking. And then he says, you know, the days when C.S. Lewis worked are gone. Okay. <laughs> And he lost me right there. Um, because if you didn't already know it, it goes Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and then C.S. Lewis. And so I was, I was a little half-cocked right there. Uh, and then the guy proceeds to say, you know, this is what he says. He boils it down and says, um, people don't think rationally anymore. Uh, we shouldn't think rationally anymore. Um, so here's, here's my reasons. And he, uh, he gave a story. He gave a story, he gave a story, and then he drew the conclusion. So reason number one, reason number two, reason number three, we shouldn't reason. And I mean, I'm just sitting there and I'm looking around at all these other pastors and I'm like, I really pray that other people get this because I cannot be associated. It's just personal allergy that I have with anything where, where it's poor reasoning. I mean, I can go along with a lot of things. I can't go along with anything that doesn't think well. I think reformations always, reformations of the church always have to have as kind of the bedrock right thinking and clear thinking. When, when uh, Martin Luther stood up to the Catholic Church and the Diet of Worms and, and he was there and he was asked for a cant and the famous statement was, um, he goes on and says, unless I'm shown by scripture or by right reason, then I I cannot recant, I will not recant to go against conscience is neither right nor true. You know, you either got to show it from Scripture or it's got to be so logical that it's like, yes, I understand that. It, it, it just makes sense and I need to follow that. The Bereans in the book of Acts kind of did that. They heard someone come in and he says, you know, I'm going to reform the way you do church. And they, they said, okay, that's nice. It sounds very persuasive, a lot of good rhetoric, but we're going to go back and reason through this using Scripture as a guide, and we're going to decide whether that's right and true. And the fault of my generation, and I know it well, is um, I and we, we draw targets on things that we don't like and we don't realize that we're just doing the same thing by buying a VW Bug, Okay. Um, and so being different or being strange, you know, 
It's not just, oh, we got socially awkward Christians over there, so let's be different. Let's go cuss. That'll be different. We'll be strange. We'll be the cussing Christians, you know? And I've met a lot of, I have a lot of friends like that. And I'm like, you're not strange. You're an idiot, okay? Um, that's not getting you anywhere. And, and so um, that's not what Scripture means by being strange. If you want to be cool, um, buy a VW rabbit, not a VW bug. Okay, if someone buys a rabbit, then I know they're really like, Getting away from the whole cool thing. <laughs> we'll start a trend, like, you know, VW trend with rabbits. They'll be going for like 10 grand on Craigslist. All right, First uh, Peter. Those are two ways not to be strange. Listen how Peter continues. Peter continues and he says, Live your lives as strangers here. How? In reverent fear. And reverent fear. Being strange to, to like set yourself apart as a Christian isn't a horizontal thing. It's not a reaction back and forth um, and just trying to do it different or be different. Being a stranger here is you're actually getting out of that game completely and saying, I'm going vertical. I'm focused on God. He's what has got my attention. That's what's dominating my thinking and how I'm acting rather than looking at my peer group and saying, how do I set myself apart and, and excel and succeed and win? I mean, remember the first time it really hit home to me and it rocked me. I was, I was just praying when I was in seminary one day and was, all of a sudden I had this picture like Jesus walked in this room and I was playing this video game, you know, with the controller and I'm trying to win the game. And all of a sudden I realized, like, the picture to me was um, when I became a Christian in some way, maybe I'd just taken the world's game out of the Xbox and slapped in the Christian game, and I was still playing the same game, doing the same thing where it's about me winning and excelling and getting ahead, and here's my joystick and my controller, and, and, and I'm, I'm playing to win. And Jesus walks in and says, you're done with that already. Are you going to drop the joy, drop the joystick, Ken? Put it down um, and come follow me. I got plans. It's not about the horizontal stuff and it's not about societal things. It's about you following me because the Father has a plan and you're a part of it. We go vertical and it's in reverent fear. Reverent fear. Now listen to how he continues. He says this. Let me just do a side note here. Because um, we're going to be dealing with these generational things for a long time, I think, in the church. And what we need to understand is that ever since World War II in America, when, when the dropout rate in schools went really low and people finished school, and then not only did they finish high school, but they started going to college in such large numbers, what it did was this. It put you and it put me with the people my exact same age for almost all of our formative years up until 21, 22. It's all the people we spend time with and we hang out with and we get shaped by are the narrow little slice that's our age and our generation and we're comfortable there. And so then when we get out into the adult world and we get into churches and we're saying, you know, this isn't really comfortable. We need to change it and make it more like it would be if it was just our generation. 
And so now the generations start warring, you know, you know, you go by 10 year increments. And so the people in their forties, you know, it's like Maranatha and, and this and that, that's us. And, and then people in their thirties are like this. And then people in their twenties are like, you know, a different thing. And everybody wants to make it comfortable and built around their generation. And they think that's church. That's the way it should be. And we get passionate about it. Why? Because it fits our passions. It's hand in glove. And the hard thing that we're going to have to deal with as we move forward with church going on in America is that part of living in reverent fear is, you know what, this is what matters. And, and I can give and take with generational things because God wants a body or a family that's got all generations in it. All generations. And, and so we've got to be gracious with the different generations um, we can work for some things that kind of make it work, but our language has to be seasoned with grace. And we might see flaws in the generations ahead of us, um, but I guarantee the generations ahead of us see flaws in the way we do it. And we're all going to be able to see each other from a different angle and vantage point, and we have to be humble enough to hear the critiques about the way we would do it. The critique against my generation is that... Um, we're so against anything that doesn't fit our, our little circle or, or tight definition. And we're so willing to break relationship and push people away to do it right. And Reformation's always set out to change and reform church, not to divide and push away so that you can just have it your own little way and it's like a glorified old person youth group. You know, that's the other reason is everyone that, that, that grows up in the church, you know, you go through junior high youth group, high school youth group, you know, college youth group, and then all of a sudden you're 22 and you're like, hey, when I go on Sunday morning, it doesn't feel like youth group. There must be something wrong, so we now have to change it. Make it more about games and me. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we're trying to factor a lot of those thinkings into our children's philosophy, our children's ministry, um, so that there's parent packs, so that it's you discipling your kids. Um, our junior high ministry, we're trying to bring them into the services and integrate them in the, the community. Um, the high school group, not just teaching them, but getting them to own their own faith so that they're going in and being treated like adults, that you're empowered to be mature. So we're trying to work these things in, but as a side note, that's what we're dealing with, is our culture breeds tight generational distinctives. Does that make sense? And we got to see it so that we can have the self-awareness to say, not everything's wrong or evil. It's different. It's different. All right, um, coming back to it in verse 18. Okay, so live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. We're going this way with it. Now, here's how this kind of really cashes out. You do this because you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. And the empty way of life here is kind of the pagan natural way of life, the the audience that Peter's writing to is this broadly dispersed audience in the, the Roman and Greco world and all this other stuff. And, and he's talking about your basic pagan city life, uh, metro life, whatever. It's just the hubbub of day-to-day existence, and it's empty. The values are empty. The, the, the game is empty that you're playing with that joystick. And that's what's been handed down to you, how, how to win and how to get ahead in society and how to handle things and how to compete. And that life is empty and you've been, you've been ransomed out of that. You've been saved. 
And it's not with silver and gold. Now, this is huge, and we've got to stop here for just a second, because the, the life that's been handed down to us has to do with circumstances. It has to do with circumstances. And in the Old Testament, salvation was often talked about circumstantially, circumstantial salvation, that God rescues, God saves, God redeems people out of Egypt and into the promised land out of this pit and then onto solid ground, away from the enemy who's, who's beating down on you and into safety, that it's circumstantial that God saves you from, from bad circumstances. Okay, now God does that. He doesn't always do it. We live in a fallen world. Everyone in this room is going to die. Um, God doesn't save us from all circumstances. But in the Old Testament, we see that language a lot. Okay? And what's crazy is when Jesus came, he came not to circumstantially save us. Judas went looking for circumstantial salvation. This is going to lead to success. It's going to lead to money. It's going to lead to power. It's going to lead to influence. And when Jesus went a different way, he said, oh, I didn't sign up for that. And so he cashed out. Simon the Zealot's following Jesus, and he's thinking, this is when Jesus is going to overthrow the Romans, and the whole culture is going to change, and we're going to be redeemed and saved that way. He's going to be a king like David. We're going to have our nation back. And, and this is like the Zealot guys were warrior guys and wanting the Romans out. And he was looking for a different kind of circumstantial salvation, and that didn't happen either. Because Jesus came for a different kind of salvation. Now, this is huge because we live our lives that way. The dominant salvation that we look for on a day-to-day, I mean, just listen to people's prayers, okay? You go sit in a prayer circle, and the kind of salvation we're talking about is circumstantial. Aunt Harriet's left elbow, and my paycheck, and so-and-so is talking bad about me, and um, I don't know how I'm going to make this thing work. God, you've got to fix my problems, The circumstances have to change for me to be saved. On a gut level, it's even worse than that, right? Um, You get a junior hire. And the junior hire, I I remember as a youth pastor, you watch this. This kid will be so obsessed with, I've got to get that pair of shoes. I've got to have an iPod. If I just had an iPod, I'd be saved. You know, people would like me and my life would be complete. And in high school, it's like, man, if I just didn't weigh this much, and if I just had that girlfriend or that boyfriend, if I, if I could just be the popular one or, or win homecoming queen or homecoming king, I'd be saved, I'd be rescued, I'd be delivered. I would then be on the top of the hill. It would all be good. And at a gut level, we live there. And then we get onto our 20s, and it's like, man, if I could just be married, everything would be okay. And if my kids would just be healthy, man, that's all I need to be on the solid ground. And then it's all good. And then we start just at a gut level. God, it's all about money. If I just had enough money, I'd be the right kind of person. If my son or daughter just walked with the Lord, if they, if they just would be obedient, if they would just follow you, God, that would just, everything would be okay. Everything would be okay. 
If this person wasn't dying in my life, if I didn't have this bill of health or cancer, that's all that matters, God. If that was just there, I'd be saved. It would all be okay. And we live there. We live in our circumstances. And we want God to buy us out of those situations with silver and gold, with other circumstantial things. We look for circumstantial salvation. God would come down and throw around his influence and his weight and his money and his power to redistribute the scales in our life so that at a gut level, life would be utopia for us. And that holds us, squeezes us. And so when we read this, we don't really take that in. I mean, honestly, we don't. We just jump right by it. It's not with such things as silver and gold that you're redeemed out of this horizontal rat race game that you're playing. We read that and we're just like, yeah, 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 yeah. The whole time our, our gut is gnawing and we just keep moving on. And then we get to the next part and it says this, it wasn't silver and gold, it was the precious blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish or defect. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know that one too. Yeah, yeah, Jesus saved me. I'm going to heaven. Yeah, yeah, I got it. And I think that we get, we get put in a position where we don't see much difference between one sentence and another, and so we miss the magnitude. Okay, it's, it's a lot like um, two things look alike, you know, so you got a pebble and you got a diamond. They look alike, same size, yada. And you, and you miss the fact that there's a wholly different weight behind these two things. You got a key to a door and you got another little piece of uh, bent up metal. Now ah, they look like the same thing, don't they? What's the big deal? Not much difference. But the one actually turns the door that makes all the difference. And so I think we see silver and gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't, I don't deal with silver and gold on a daily basis. Don't touch it, you know. Um, it's at Fort Knox. And the, the blood of Jesus, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a metaphor. It's not like I really understand that. And I haven't been sacrificing any sheep lately. Um, so the whole thing that Jesus was a lamb so that, I, you know, I don't have to use these lambs. Really don't touch that doesn't resonate with me at that level. So they're both just concepts, and I move right along, and I miss the fact that this makes all the difference in the world. It makes all of the difference in the world. The fact that we have been saved by the blood of the Lamb is God stepping in and saying, I could play with your circumstances, but I can do better than that. There's the kid that walks into the house or the adult that walks in the house. I think this is the analogy. We're all muddy. Life is messy. People are messy. And we're touching things and it's getting all messy. And we're like, God, you know, help me clean this up. Why is everything getting messy? Help me clean this up. And we want God to like come along and sponge the wall and clean up the messes. And God says, no, no, no. I'm going to do one better. I'm going to wash you. I'm going to clean you. I'm going to change the whole picture so that none of the little stuff in the pagan way of life that was handed down to you is going to really matter anymore because that is going to be the old and you're going to be heading over to the new because you're now clean and you can be with me 
you can live vertically with reverent fear and awe and actually have a relationship with me. Um, I'm doing you 50 billion times better. I'm going to wash you with the blood of the Lamb. So let's read it just one more time. Know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. God put a lot of thought into this. He wanted Christ's sacrifice to be perfect, not to just be a haphazard thing. He intentionally worked your salvation for you. And he wants you to grab hold of that so that you live completely different than you would have if he hadn't have done that. And so this matters to him. And so in the Old Testament, the language was, I worked your salvation out of Egypt, brought you through the desert and into the promised land. And so now when you get afraid, where should you look? You should look to me because I'm big. I saved you big. I'm the biggest thing out there. And so God always says, you don't go back to Egypt for help and you don't go back to Egypt for horses. When you get insecure and the circumstances throw you, you don't go back to pagan ways of dealing with things to try and win and fix it. You look to me with reverent fear and awe and you live by faith and you submit, not strive. So how does that relate to us? Um, my big epiphany when I was like 25 was, um, this is the paradigm I put on. I started realizing, you know what? Everybody's got insecurities. And I'm, I've kind of a sick, twisted mind until Tamara married me and, and changed me. But so I was like, wow, everybody's got insecurities. So I would like try and find them. And I'd go around and I would like, oh, I spotted it, you know. Oh, I got it. Uh, you know, and I would I'd just like find people's buttons and I'd find their insecurities. And it was amazing to me. Everybody has insecurities. And even where they're strong, if you took one little thing away, they would all of a sudden have an insecurity. Somebody that just um, works out 20 hours a day, (laughs) works out while they're sleeping, right? Um, You strike them with some kind of a disease and their body wastes away, man, it's going to just flip it so quick. They're going to be so insecure about their body. You just take away a strength and immediately a weakness pops up. We are insecure and we don't know how to deal with everything. And then there's some legitimate ones. It's, I'm a dad and I got to provide for my kids and I don't know how I'm going to be able to do that. And I feel all alone. Who, I'm the dad. Who's, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be here for everyone, but I don't know what to do. I'm lost and I'm alone and I'm afraid and we live here. And so what do we do? What we do is we run back to Egypt and we try and get some horses. That's what I do. That's what the people I know do. We, we are tempted to run back and try and solve our problems the way the world solves our problems. And what it does is it makes us this. Write this down if you want. It makes us practical atheists. It makes us practical atheists because what we end up doing is affirming that God is big that God planned this salvation for us, and it's huge. It's bigger than everything else. And yet, when we're faced with difficulties, instead of looking up and going, my God's big enough to handle this, we run and try and fix it ourselves, and we live as if God doesn't exist. So we affirm that God does exist, 
But then we end up living as if he doesn't exist. That's a practical atheist. It's a practical atheist. If you turn to Hebrews with me, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about faith. People that really do believe that God exists. I mean, really believe that God exists. And it starts talking about people that did things and they were confused, but they walked forward just by faith, not by sight. And, and they, uh, they underwent religious persecution. They lost their lives because of their faith. In chapter 11, beginning in verse 13, it says this. Hebrews eleven thirteen. All these people that lived by faith were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. And if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have have had opportunity to return. Let me back up. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. And if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return, to go back to Egypt. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. If we really believe that God has prepared a city for us and he's calling us home, then we're not going to care when... um, the value on our existing home goes down. We already own a different one. We're not going to waste time trying to fix up and patch the little holes um, because this is my home and it's the only thing I've got. I'm going to treasure it. Um, Have you ever moved out? I I moved a lot when I was in college and it's fascinating. The minute you know you're moving, you stop taking care of where you're living. Um, That's always the fear when you own a rental property, right? is that renters are strangers in your home and they're not going to value it because we don't have a connection with it. And if we're strangers in this pagan kind of world, we don't have a connection with it. We don't own it. It's not ours. We don't have to polish it up. We don't have to take care of it. It's not what we're worried about. We're going somewhere else. It's like a ship that's going to be sinking and there's another ship that's come and we're going to be moved over to this ship. And you're not going to polish the brass on the one that's sinking, are you? Um, the picture over here that Lori's doing. We were talking about it beforehand. And she's kind of got the world. She's got this city and she's got this ship. And it's like this thing of don't miss God's salvation who's calling you upward. And so while we're here, we do good. And I think that loving people isn't polishing the brass. We, we get involved in missions. We get involved in social justice. We get involved in loving people. Peter, we're going to see real quickly, the next thing down, when he talks about obedience, he immediately says, obedience is this, loving people. Loving people. It's not wearing a cross. It's not wearing some bracelet. It's not reading certain things. Those are great. Those are great things to do. But obedience to God is loving people. That's not polishing the handrails. It's not trying to win at this game. It's loving people. And so we don't focus on this world. 
We focus on the people. We focus on where we're going. We let go. Does that make sense? There's only one way I know to really live like this. Um, Because I think it sounds really great. And I think there's a big amen there, you know. Um, But at the end of the day, we have to live as if God exists, which means we've got chaos around us that really gets at our gut. And we have to somehow be detached enough, or God has to be big, big enough that he overshadows these problems so that we live as if God really does exist, not as if he doesn't. There's only one way I know for that to happen in your life. And that's spending time with God, your own relationship with God. It's solitude. I I remember reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's letters and papers from prison. And it's when Bonhoeffer's in this Gestapo prison. And it's the letters he wrote and the poems he wrote and, and just the essays he was writing. And I remember thinking, you know what? Sometimes it's good when we're ripped out of society and put all by ourselves because it sets it all in relief and we can see it really clearly that what really matters here is the ultimate salvation that God is working for me through Jesus Christ. What really matters here is that I have faith in God and that I trust Him. And so I only know of one way and it's just to pull yourself out of your problems, to get away, to go hike a trail, climb a mountain. Jesus did the same thing. It start, his whole ministry started by 40 days in the desert fasting. And then every time he got mired in the details of life, he would just pull away and go get on a little hilltop or a little mountaintop. And he, he needed that. How much more do we need that? I mean, we should have like 20 times a day that we're like getting on top of a mountain. It's like every half hour. Um, we're going and getting away with God and we're just putting it all before God and saying, God, this has an illusion of importance. And I'm looking for silver and gold to fix it all. But it's not. The reality is what you're doing and calling me home, the salvation. You've already worked for me. And I have to trust that you're big enough to handle all this stuff. It's hard. I don't want to, God. I don't feel it. I don't have the energy. Nobody's standing there lifting my arms up like the two guys did with Moses when he was weak and tired. I don't feel like I necessarily have the support. So I'm, I'm sitting here on my knees. And I'm going to stay on my knees and I'm going to plead with you until you give me strength. I'm weak, but I know I can be strong if you would give me the grace. And we just got to go to God more. We get caught up in just the busyness. And I know it's like I can't let go of the busyness because if I let go, I'm going to get behind. And that was the whole catch-22 that I think it was always been there with the Sabbath principle. Is I've got to keep working because I've got to provide. And if I stop for one day a week, I'm going to get behind and, and it's all going to come undone. The wheels are going to come off. And God says, no, you trust me. I can help you get done in six days what you need to get done. You give me that seventh day. You gotta tr- We've got to trust God that if we go to Him in prayer, He's going to take care of the rest of it. That that time somehow is going gonna, is gonna to come back to us that God will provide. It doesn't depend on us. 
It depends on a, a God who is way bigger than us or the problems that we're trying to solve. And so we've got to do that very difficult thing and actually pry our fingers off of our life. And I'm working on this in my own life right now. And my staff is like always chafing at me about. I'm, I'm trying to pry my fingers off of these stresses that I think I have to fix. And just go spend time with God and get it all right and it'll come into line. There's a faith thing there to our life. There's a faith thing. First Peter is amazing because the early church fathers, a lot of them, the, the people that lived kind of for a couple hundred years after the New Testament period, a lot of them pulled First Peter language into their writings. I mean, it's a really kind of strange phenomenon when you study the early church fathers. And I think the reason was because it deals with suffering and hope. And for the first couple hundred years of the church, that's really all that was going on. And so they pull this language into their, their writings about suffering and how we have to have hope in the midst of it and live as if God exists. And so it's kind of this wild thing. And Clement of Alexandria is one of them. And in this passage where he's almost quoting Peter, he concludes with, God is turning all of our sunsets into sunrise. God is turning all of our sunsets into sunrise. And that's, that is what the people of faith grab hold of. It's, it's what we look to and has to be big enough and palpable enough that we cling to it and nobody can pull us off of that. We have to live as if God exists. Our actions need to show that God really exists. We need to be strange enough because we don't care about problems. We look to God with reverent fear and awe. That's what's strange. We're, we're in, inflappable. What we're looking to, to receive isn't the same thing that's just going to fix everything. We're looking to receive more faith and more hope and more peace because that's what we really need. I'm going to invite the um, worship team to come up and uh, we're going to take the offering in just a minute. But um, Amanda wrote the song that they're going to do. She wrote it last night. And so I'm just going to let that song kind of be our prayer. Um, today, because what I, what I really just think we need to realize is that God so desires us to live as if He really exists. We need to live as if God, we, want, we need to want to live as if God really exists. We need to be strengthened and encouraged and people need to come around us and we need to read the scriptures and we need to pray and we need to do whatever the heck we can do as if our life depends on it to live as if God exists. That's the life of faith.